0: This podcast is brought to you by Mae McCarthy, the author of a new book entitled The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step success system to create a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743, where May and Greg speak about gratitude in a new way, using a practical system that you can put to use every day to achieve success in your relationships, career, finance, health, personal pursuits, spiritual growth, and virtually any other aspect of your life. May's method is built upon starting each day with a grateful heart, and the details of her seven-step practice for success are very powerful. Everyone is a success, but you can be more successful if you listen to and apply the practices and principles that May speaks about in this podcast and in her new book, The Gratitude Formula, a seven-step system for creating a life that you love. Please listen to podcast number 743 with author May McCarthy about her new book, The Gratitude Formula. You can learn more about May, retreats, workshops, videos, and consulting services by visiting www.maymccarthy.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voysen, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And as I do, John, every time I come on one of these shows, I thank the listeners for their just coming back again and again. As I said, we've amassed just so many people from around the world that are listening to this podcast now about the books. And today, where are you joining me from, John?
2: I am in Cleveland, Ohio.
1: Cleveland, Ohio. Well, that's a great spot. I don't know what it's like today because we're talking on September 3rd, I think it is. So hopefully you're having a beautiful day there. And
2: we, we are, in fact, we are, good. In fact, we're, we're always grateful for sun and no snow.
1: <laughs> well, John Bryant is the author of Nincompoopery: Poopery, Why Your Customers Hate You and How to Fix It. Uh, this is a great book. We're going to be talking with John today about that. But, John, I'm going to let my listeners know something about you. He is the CEO and founder of MPI Group, which has devoted more than two decades to studying leadership and effective purpose driven organizations, an expert on how companies can adapt themselves to the realities of new markets, new corporate structures, and new customer expectations. Uh, John is an accomplished management innovator and internationally recognized expert on manufacturing, technology, and performance management. Well, you know, for the first part, when I got this book in, I was like nincompoopery. Hey, I, I, I remember Poop. when you're, you're a Poop means you're a dumbhead, right? Um, I remember that from school. So, you know, how did this whole thing come about for you about, you know, actually, when you think about it? I'd never seen a book with that title, so that's got to be a great way to capture people's attention. Um, what does this whole nincompoopery have to do with our listeners and them wanting to buy your book?
2: Well, it is because most of us um, are are either victims of and often terribly enough in our businesses, we are we are perpetrators of nincompoopery. And nincompoopery is the corporate stupidity that happens when customers want something from us or we want something from somebody and we don't get it and nobody seems to know how to fix it. And what happens is, just an example, you go to the car shop, right? You take your car in, you're gonna get it fixed. And maybe you're driving home and you realize you've been waiting for two or three hours there and all of a sudden you realize the car wasn't actually fixed. And at that point, you've got this awful choice: Do I drive an unsafe car or a car that's not fixed, or do I take it back and do I wait again? And what happens is we think, oh my gosh, you know the the mechanic who did this, he or she is a nincompoop, and the mechanic's boss probably says, oh my gosh, are you a nincompoop? And it all goes down the line, and yet, and the the dealership loses money, we're mad, they might lose us as a customer and yet when you start analyzing this and we've done research across more than 50,000 companies when you start looking at this almost always it's never the nincompoop or the supposed nincompoop it's always the nincompoopery and what i mean by that is the the corporate is the way a company has not set itself up to deliver value to a customer efficiently because in that instance for example well maybe the mechanic forgot to do something but was the mechanic trained properly were they trained and, and a lot of times what we see is industry after industry, people will train somebody on a technical skill, but they won't train them on an improvement methodology, or they won't train them on how to make a process better, because, for example, in this instance, a simple checklist would have been a great idea, and so it's not really the mechanic's fault. It's the fault of the people, the managers, and those running the business who haven't set it up in a way where customers get what they want and where their employees don't have to be seen as poops. and we see this over and over again and what's really irritating about it is that most of the time, the people in these businesses—if it's our businesses, the business we're, businesses that we are we're buying from—everybody knows that it's going wrong, but nobody seems to know how to fix it, because yeah, nobody it's... will take the time to do it. And that's what that's what drives me crazy. It's the reason I wrote the book. It's like this is not that hard to fix. Here's the things to focus on that we've seen it you know, when we look across these fifty thousand companies. This is what they do.
1: Well, and I, and I would say this, this, this problem is being exacerbated by technology. So now a lot of things have happened good because of technology. But on the other hand, a lot of things, and I was mentioning one of those before we got on the air, you know, things where you think, okay, you just should push some buttons, blah, 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 and it happens. So, you know, with Amazon, one of the things that I say hey, is uh, I can actually get a refund before my item actually hits back to their docs, Right. So you you look at the systems that are behind this and you say that listening or watching for listening and the yes and would you speak about that because i think these companies are getting plenty of warnings there there's it's out there but who the hell's listening?
2: <laughs> and that is i think you've nailed one of the one of the big problems here is most of the time when companies get in trouble on this it's because Companies themselves, managers, maybe employees, have sort of—they're sort of stopped listening to employees or stop listening to customers. Because when a customer gives you a complaint, when a customer says this is wrong, that is the biggest gift you can get if you are running a business. And the reason it's a gift because what it means is that that customer cares enough about you and their relationship with you, cares enough about what you do for them, that they are asking you to please do it better. And you almost always see business units, stores, companies start to go wrong when they start either sort of saying, oh, yeah, customers are always complain. Or, you know, some, how many times have you heard somebody say to you, you know, this would be a great business if it wasn't for the customers. You know, our customers are just cranky and stupid. Well, you know what? They're not stupid. They are cranky because you're not doing the right job, and you're ignoring them. What's even worse, I think, is that when you start seeing that companies start to ignore and where there's a management team that doesn't want to hear the feedback because they would have to change their behavior. And they either just start ignoring it, as I've talked about, or they start actively suppressing any dissent or any real reports from the front line where they, because they don't want to hear it, they don't want, they feel like it's a challenge to their authority. And because they're able to live in, you know, what I call customer free zones. You know, you live in the boardroom, you live, you know, in in your office somewhere. If you don't have to go see customers, you know, you can sort of, at least for a while, isolate yourself from that. It's one of the things that's really striking when you look at companies that are doing great things, they almost always have some kind of a program where every employee has to meet with customers at least once a year, because there is no better way to focus attention than to have customers tell you exactly what they think of what you're doing.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think you mentioned curiosity. And I think if, if people aren't curious, mean, I mean, meaning asking questions of their customers to find out what's going on, to have this high level of curiosity, they're really missing the boat. And I think that that happens a lot, doesn't it? I mean, we've got companies that think these systems have been put in place, that they're perfect. Um, but what you're saying is that it usually isn't the people that have been trained to do this issue. It's the systems that are failing them, Right.
2: It is a, it's a system that's failing. I mean, you mentioned technology. I mean, you know, it's one of the things that we're wrestling with. Is that it looks really easy to some managers to put in technology, and and to and they they sometimes think that technology is a substitute for human oversight or human intervention, and that's why you hear these horrible stories about you know people getting stuck in feedback loops. There's a there's a stat that um, Americans generally spend about 13 hours a year on hold calling for service to various companies, at 13 hours a year. And sometimes you can't get it resolved. What we need is the, is, is the curiosity that you, that you mentioned there and to figure out how it is that we can understand what customers need. Now, I wanna stress, curiosity is important, but you can't just go out and say, okay, what will you buy from us next week? What will you buy from us next year? Because as Steve Jobs once said, sometimes people can't tell you what they want until you show it to them. What we have to do, to your point, and I think it's a great point about being curious, is not just be curious about what is the next sale, what is the next transaction. We have to be curious about that individual. We have to be curious about that business. If it's a business of our customer, how do they make money? What are the things they're going going through? And really, the only way you can do that is to be curious, but you also have to be present. And I mean present while you're asking that question, but actually I mean present by going and living in somebody's house or working alongside them in their business. Because it's great to take them to a game, it's great to go have a beer with them, it's great to have lunch. But what you really want to do is be side by side with that person when they are wrestling with the problems that your product or service should be should be solving. And what you'll do if you what if, what what you will find if you and your employees can do that is you will start to see sometimes things that are associated needs. It's not really related to your product, but it's in, inextricably bound with what the customer is trying to fix. And so you may find that you need to bundle your product with a competitor's product or with a product that's adjacent to yours to provide a total solution. Because increasingly, you know, as you mentioned with the technology, we're looking at our phones 150 times or more a day. We live in a to-do list culture now, and every single one of us feels overwhelmed, and that includes our customers.
1: Well, you know, you you even mentioned it in that interview on WGN about you know critical thinking skills. You know, I, I think you know, this has been going on for a long time. I've interviewed Absolutely. lots of authors who've talked about multitasking. We can't multitask, we're less productive, we're making more mistakes. But really, at the core issue of this, while technology has helped to speed things up, it has created some challenges which I think aren't being looked at. Speak with us if you would, because you know, you tell the readers, hey, read the afterwards first. Um, what are what is going on here and how can we use this and how can we live in harmony with this so that we aren't making as many nincompoopery mistakes um, so that we can be better with our customers in every way possible so that they feel like there's a human connection somewhere. I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, you get into, um, you get into voicemail hell. And mm-hmm. you, you go through six, seven, eight different people to get there and you finally get there. You're so exhausted that, and then that person isn't the person to answer what you need to have answered because it's so complex. Right. So right. it's, it's like, how do you help a company? Cause you're the guy that comes in and tries to fix these systems. How do you help a company get through some of that crap?
2: It's. It's really challenging. I mean, it starts out with what we've already talked about, going out and talking to the customers. But then it's like thinking through, you know, what are our, who do we want for employees? And of course, you you know, you want people who have technical skills. You can't be a mechanic, for example, as before. If you don't, if you can't fix a car, you can't be a jet mechanic. if You can't fix a jet but it starts with figuring out okay beyond that though what do we want to hire and it really comes down to to talking about character that's it. so this is the first thing we want to make sure that we're hiring people for smarts for diligence and for people who care about customers and if you do that then you can screw up in lots of other ways and and make it right and you know an example of this is you know we can we can do we can put all these systems in the place as you mentioned we can put all these technologies in the place But what we really need to focus on is what's going to happen when we're not there, when the system fails. Um, And why that is, is because when you look at the developed world right now, we don't really see an organizational model that works that isn't decentralized. In general, decision making is put close to the customer, is put close to the production line, whether it's insurance forms, a, a factory, you know, making a hamburger, handing it out, whatever it is, performing a service. Because of that, you want to make sure that you've got really smart, well trained people, but who can think through what is the long term thing? How do we make this person happy? McKinsey and Company did a lot of really great work on this. They call that the moment of truth. And a moment of truth is an interaction with a customer where something can go really right, or maybe more often, it can go dramatically wrong. And they did a great study of banks in Europe. What they did is they found a bunch of customers who had had something bad happen to them. You know, they're their, uh, there was a bank error, they had a check put on hold, they got financial advice, maybe that didn't work out, whatever it was, and they were able to segment them by, did they have a positive impact? Did they have a positive experience at that moment of truth? Or did they have a negative experience? And a positive experience is somebody from the bank reached out, told you about it. Somebody, they said, we're gonna look into this, we're gonna take care of it, they followed up, and they took care of the issue, even if they couldn't fully satisfy you. <clears throat> a negative experience at that moment of truth, you know, the bank doesn't call you. You had to find it yourself. You call up, you get stuck is what you called voicemail hell. Uh, you know, a number of things, and it just took forever. What happened was really interesting. So these are all people who had something bad happen to them. And you know, there's nothing that gets people quite as wiggy as when something bad happens with their money. Eighty seven percent of the people who had a positive um, Interaction with the bank at that moment of truth, remember something bad has happened, but the bank reached out to them eighty seven percent of them increased their share of wallet with the bank. Conversely, the people who had that negative impact, the bank didn't seem to care, et cetera seventy two percent of them decreased their share of wallet with the bank and What is striking about this is that this making sure that we still keep the human touch as you're talking about, making sure that we just don't out try to outsource everything to technology. What happens in every relationship, think about this, is, is whether it's personal or whether it's business, <clears throat> what happens matters, but really what is more important is how we are treated as that thing happens. Because every relationship, I believe, is, um, whether personal or business, is fundamentally forged in times of crisis, because in a time of crisis, you figure out who you can count on and who you can't. We need to have employees and systems in place that make sure that employees have the latitude And the freedom to make that customer happy or at least feel cared for in that moment instead of getting stuck in voicemail hell or repeatedly getting the same, you know, response from a bot.
1: So, so true. And I think that human element is so important in all of this. And in your book, you you have these three types of nincompoops who prevent change. (laughs) You you call it the woe is all of us. The woe is you. The woe is change. Explain to the listeners, you know, because look, in any business situation, uh, you're going to have the doomsayers, right? Um, And you have to get everybody aboard to make change happen. You've got to get alignment to make change happen. And your role as a consultant, I would think, is really working at the human resource level, human capital level, finding the right people, making sure they're intelligent enough, as you were saying. And look, if these are the types of people, how do we either convert them or we just get them out of the business?
2: Correct. So there are three. Woe is all of us. These are the people who've just given up. They go, nothing is ever going to change. You know, all of our customers and coworkers are dense as neutron stars, et cetera, whatever. They've just given up. If you're trying to lead a change effort, you can't worry about them because you could offer them, you know, a million dollars and they're not going to change. The next group is, you know, as you mentioned, is the, the woe is you. And there's two types of these. Woe is you are the people who, when you say, well, we're going to lead a change. And they go, and they're the type of people who says, well, who are you to lead such a change? You know, you've only been here a year or five years, your entire life. You never, you didn't get an MBA. You didn't whatever. Um, and the, so some of those people, the ones who would say stuff like that to you, they're the ones you can't really worry about them either. Because there's nothing you're going to be able to do to convince them. Those I call the intentional woe is yours. The unintentionals are the ones are who will say, well, they're kind of fearful or timid. And they'll say, well, that sounds like a good idea, but I don't know if you or any of us could do that. And they usually come up with some, "Let's let's have another meeting. Let's form a committee. Let's make a commission. And so these are people who, once you start to make change, will come along. So you need to work with them, help them, but they're not necessarily the ones who are gonna help you lead that change. What you're looking for is the third group, and that is the one you mentioned, woe is change. These are the people who, when you tell them about it, they go, gosh, well, that would be great, but I don't know, nobody's ever been able to do that before. What do you think we would do, da-da-da? These are your people. These are the ones who, if you can show them how it could work, how it could change, how it could better make a better life for their customers, their community, and themselves, they are the ones who will work with you, You'll eventually then con, con, convince the unintentionals and then the other ones will come along or they won't and they'll go somewhere else. You know, maybe, yeah, to, an that's, poop. maybe, that's maybe a, to an income poop store.
1: Well, I think in that third level, those are the people that are curious, right? Those are the people that, that have high levels of curiosity. They love to solve problems and they want to help, right? More than anything, right. I think the key is having this attitude of helping and serving, trying to find solutions. And thinking outside the dots, right? It's like, how do I make this all happen? I mean, there's got to be a better way to do it. I was just at a think tank up in Silicon Valley for three days. And I think one of the things that we have happened, John, is we come into a lot of things with assumptions, preset of assumptions, right? That we know things or presumptions, I should say, Uh, that as well. (laughs) And the reality is, is that that's not a place to come from. You have to let all that down if you're going to try and solve some of these problems. And it's very hard when you enter something with no context, because you think there's got to be a context to do it from. But if I'm going to deconstruct something, if you're going to tell somebody out there listening today, how would you tell them to kind of deconstruct, reconstruct, and build it better?
2: Mm -hmm. While you're continuing to operate it. While you're continuing to operate it, get paychecks and make money, you hope.
1: Yeah, what, what what advice would you have to actually do that for some of our listeners?
2: You know, I think you have to, to step back and talk about, you know, there's for specific processes, there's lots of ways to do it. I think the bigger thing, if you're trying to lead a change like that, is to think about what do you actually need to do to lead change? And we talked about the types of people. We kind of had a little fun with that. The thing about change that we forget when we see a need for it or we see ourselves as a potential change agent is that we get so excited that sometimes we will forget that resistance to change is actually pretty much a normal human reaction. You know, everybody says change, it's just uh, usually people only like it if it means nothing is gonna be different. Um, And they've they've done psychology studies, where there was one experiment where people were told that they could get a they were hooked up to these electrodes and they were told that they could get a harsher electrical jolt now you know it was going to feel something like a strong insect bite or they could get a milder shock later a strong buzz 70 percent of people said i'll take the harder shock now and the and that was a, that was as far as they went with the experiment they just wanted to see what their response was it's because even though when people know change or when they know something could be better in the future the anxiety of waiting and what might happen is so overwhelming that people will choose a bad outcome now to avoid a potentially bad outcome later. And the reason that's significant is that's what happens in our organizations. Every, if you've got an organization that's screwed up, if you've got things that aren't working, the people who are still there have made some sort of accommodation with themselves. Like, eh, it's not so great, I don't like the way we treat customers, but what can you do about it? They've some in some way convinced themselves. What you have to do is, Explain what the change is gonna be and then have to you have to expect resistance to that. And the resistance is gonna come, interestingly enough, not because of the nature of the change. You wanna change this process, you wanna fix inventory. wow, well, whatever it is you want to do, it's almost never to the actual change. It is to what the change means to them as individuals. Because yeah, when you I'm sorry, I, go ahead.
1: Oh well, and I would echo that. I think that's that is so true. What is that change? But you know, you you mentioned this in one of your chapters. You said you start this book with conviction that everybody knows what they need to know to be a leader yep. and the, you covered what you need to know to lead change and how to implement the anti-nincompoopery plan within the organization or team. Um, what What is it that people, you, there's real evident that people don't see most of the time, John, that you help them see about this anti-nincompoopery plan?
2: You need to, as you're walking people through the change, you need to think about what are the things that they need. And we're going to get to, you need to think about what they need and what you need. So what they need is for you to to sort of address, there's this change. What What are the needs? Well, in general, if you look at all the rubrics, psychology, otherwise, people are looking for security. They're looking for relationships. They're looking for meaning. So when you address a change, you have to satisfy the idea of what does this change mean to them in the long term? Are they going to still be making money? Will they still have a job? You may not be able to tell them that at the time. You have to be truthful about that. They're going to want to know how does this change? How will it change the way that, that my job is seen in this company and the way I work with people? How will people look at me? How will my family look at me? How will the community look at me? What will the change mean there? And then beyond that, it really comes to, you know, I think a topic near and dear to your heart once people have had those two needs satisfied, they generally start to look for meaning in their life. And for most people, the the primary meaning they're going to get out of their life is some combination of faith and family and community, et cetera, principles. But a very important secondary need for meaning is is from our work. Because if you start working in your early 20s, and if you work through your 60s, you're going to work about 90,000 hours in your life And most of us want that not just to be, you know, time served, if we can, we'd like it to mean something. And so if you're leading change, you have to explain to them why this actually makes a difference in their lives, why it makes a difference to the community, how it's going to change customers' lives or an industry. And then beyond that, if you can work all that, then, you know, one of the things that is striking is you have to work on yourself because i see a yeah. lot of times people who have who who have a great idea but they're not sure as you mentioned they've got a conviction you you've we've shown them in you know my book any other a bunch of other books how do you do this why don't people move forward and it's usually a lack of confidence that they are the right person to lead change and it's very understandable i mean right. you know you got people all around you saying nobody's done this before how are you going to do it you know and and even worse we've seen ourselves fail over and over again in life and in business. We've all made mistakes and we start to believe that that makes us, you know, um, unqualified. In fact, making mistakes and learning from them is how you become qualified to do anything, whether you're playing golf or, or running a business.
1: I think that's an important point. I mean, failure at doing things and learning from your failure If people, you don't even have to call them failure, call them learning lessons because that's what they are. As long as you don't repeat it. Um, the other thing is, I remember a book that MIT put out called "Immunity to Change." Right? They studied all the, they studied. They studied these doctors from Kaiser. So these uh, heart patients would go in and had heart attacks, and eight out of ten of them, the doctor would even prescribe it. And they'd set out on the track, and they wouldn't follow the regimen, Right? Mm-hmm. Do your exercise, eat right. You know, all the kind of things that you'd want to do. We're talking eight out of ten and psychologically you know what they've found out and i think that's where we're at is this immunity to change is kind of built into that brain of ours and we literally have to rewire and refire right and so you describe three requirements for change in the books and and i'd like you to talk about that because i think it's important because at the core of all this we're all human beings And we can either resist and what we resist persists, or we can really embrace this change and make it something new in our life. How would you tell people to embrace this change?
2: You know, I think one of the things, and this is, I've seen in many, many people that I've known, have worked with, and I've seen it in myself, is we tend to have lagging perceptions of ourselves, and we tend to look in a mirror that is fairly distorted. You know, and that is why it's sometimes easier for a friend, you know, a colleague, whatever, to, to say, no, 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 you, you actually can do this. Because we tend to think that, you know, uh, that we are, we, we tend to think that we are what we started as. You know, if you started as an accountant, if you started as a, a front, uh, production worker, we tend to get, we, we adopt that as an identity. And then we're asked to lead, to lead, to move up, et cetera. We're incredibly nervous about that because we've never done that before. And we tend to have these images. and, You know, there's a, a professor at the London Business School, Erminia uh, Barra, who's wrote a book, "Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader." And she talked about the fact that when pe- when you have to go through change, you have to actually sort of reinvent your identity, not for other people, but for the way you think about yourself. And when we think it, when we think about it, we think about what is our authenticity. Um, we somehow think if we do something different or, or that we're being inauthentic, we're not being true to ourselves. But that what she talks about is the fact that if you hold on to that as your authenticity, it's constraining as opposed to expanding because you have to think through, the, what she says, this is a quote of hers. She says, they think the real them is the past version and that that basket of skills and preferences is what they're going to have for the rest of their lives. That's not true. We evolve and change as we develop new preferences and we discover capacities that we didn't know we have. That's really scary because yeah, what if we fail? Right. Even though, right. I mean, one of the best quotes I ever heard about that is failure is the key to the kingdom inside. Nobody, nobody, nobody learns and hardly any of us learn anything from success. What we learn from is when we fail.
1: Most definitely. And I'm going to let my listeners know because you have this MPI group, which is people purpose profits website. There's toolkits there. Uh, there's all kinds of studies that you've done. You really are quite the thought leader when it comes around this, John. And I want to let my listeners know, definitely go to MPI group.com where you can learn more about John, the book, the studies, Uh, his blog, and actually subscribe. I think that you'd get a lot out of it if you're going through some of this nincompoopery within your company, which many of you are, I'm sure, who are listening. Uh, So check out John's website at mpi-group.com. John, is there also a uh, website for the book itself?
2: Yeah, and you can just go to johnrbrandt.com and you know there's you know photos of the the chief nincompoop that would be me and uh and and stuff about the book as well <laughs> john all
1: right we'll send them to both john it's been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth and speaking with our listeners today about your new new book Nincom Poopery, why your customers hate you and how to fix it uh i would highly recommend going this so we're going to get um, a, a link to the book at Amazon. It's a Harper Collins book, and you got a great quote on the back from a dear, dear friend of mine, Dr. Lance Secretan. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So i Lance for a long time. This is a, <laughs> this is a, this is a great book. Everybody go out and get it. Uh, John, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes and uh, and letting our listeners know about Poopery.
2: Greg, thank you so much. It's been a, been a lot of fun.